Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording from our Passover prep learning series. There are certain shiurim that I've experienced, certain classes in my life that have been so good that I can give them over verbatim decades after I heard them. There are certain lectures that I remember from college that were so exceptional that I can remember like the teacher's affect when he was, he was saying a particular sentence. I was ex- heard an amazing shiur on Pesach, my last year of rabbinical school, so 22 years ago, about now, from um, Rabbi J.J. Schachter, who at the time was the rabbi of the Jewish Center uh, in New York, a classic uh, centrist Orthodox synagogue in New York. Rabbi Schachter is an, a, a tremendous teacher and tremendous sage, um, and I shouldn't have to say it this way, but to his credit, because this would not necessarily happen amongst many of the, the rabbis at YU, he was one of the rabbis at YU, he came every year and gave a class to the JTS rabbinical students, and that's not a small thing. It shouldn't be a small, it shouldn't be a big thing, but it is. And he gave a, a shiur, which he called the dialectics of the symbols of the Haggadah, where he produced an, an amazing source sheet showing how many of the symbols that we think of as being monochrome on the Seder actually have multi-hues to them, right? So some of the more obvious ones, but they're not that obvious, right? Matzah. Matzah is lechem oni, the bread of affliction, right? The modest, humble bread, which is all that slaves could put together. So matzah is a symbol, therefore, of enslavement. And matzah is the bread of freedom, right? The other explanation for matzah is that we had it because on the way out, on their way to freedom, our ancestors didn't have time to let it rise, right? Every five-year-old knows that story of matzah. So when you're looking at matzah, are you tethered or are you liberated? Um, Charoset, right? What's the first story you hear about charoset when you're a kid? What's charoset represent? The mortar. The mortar, right? Mortar, and it's, and it's, and it's got red wine. It's, it's a horrific image because it's the blood of the Israelites that were shed in creating the building materials for, for the enslavement project, right? So I remember growing up, even as a child, thinking that's so incongruous because charosa was my favorite thing to eat at the, at the Seder at the time. It was sweet and nutty and appley, but it's representing like, uh, murder, right? So uh, one of the sources that we learned, um, there is a, a com- commentary of, the, of Tosafot on one of the sections of the Talmud, Masecha Psachim, that's dealing with the origin story of Haroset. Um, and the Tosafot goes into an d- explanation as to why even back then in Ashkenaz in the 14th, 15th century, it was common that nearly every Haroset recipe had apple. Right? If you go really worldwide, that's not the case. But at least in Ashkenaz, every haroset recipe had apple. I know that like Sephardi or Persian haroset is mostly dates and nuts and not apple. But why apple? The rabbis created a midrash from the verse in Shir Hashirim, from Song of Songs, Tachat HaTapuach or Articha, underneath the apple tree, I awakened you, I aroused you. And they created the image that it was during enslavement that the women would woo their husbands out beyond where the taskmasters could see them, and, and were coquettish and wooing underneath the apple tree, and that's where the next generation of Israelites was produced, essentially. So from that read, haroset is not, or not only a, an example, a symbol of oppression, it's a symbol of resistance and of hope and of life. Okay. But of all the symbols on the Haggadah that seems to be monochrome, the most obvious one is maror, right? There's nothing... I mean, you might have an interesting taste bud, but there's nothing intentionally tasty about maror. There's nothing in the etymology of maror that suggests that it's anything but bitterness. The pasuk says, they embittered our lives. There's no common understanding that maror is representing anything but enslavement. But there are other ways of understanding it. So look at the the source sheet I handed out that Rabbi Shach shared. I'm actually going to start with a second source. So uh, we'll, we'll go back to the first source. The second, second, second source is referred to as the SHLA, which is an acronym for the Shnei Luchot Harit. You see it there, Rabbi Yishayahu Halevi Horovitz, uh, 16th and 17th century. Um, it's a halachic work, and it's a mystical work all wrapped into one. First time I ever studied this work um, 
in, a, in, a, in a intense way. I was at a rabbinic retreat my first or second year out, and the then chancellor of the of JTS, Ismar Shorsh, who we all got to know as like a classic historian studying, um, you know, the the emergence of concerted Judaism in Germany in the 19th century. He did a whole four day class on the Shnei Luchot Abri, which is extraordinary because we'd never seen that side of him, the one who could really go deep into the the, the mystical. Um, associations of the text. That was my first introduction to him. And every time I come back to this text, to this author, I'm, I feel grateful for it. Okay. Look at uh, the top of that sheet. I'm going to read in Hebrew, but then I'll expl- explicate a little bit in English. Now we're going to explain with God's help. With greater depth. Maror. Let me explain Maror, he says. Maror begamatria mot. So if you add up the numerical value of the Hebrew word maror, you get to 446. Did I do the math right? Right? And 446 is also the gematria, the numerical um, calculation of the word mot, or mavet, meaning death. So the first thing he says is maror, death. So far, he seems to be on point. Shehem hadinim hakashim. These are the harsh decrees, the harsh judgments in life, the bitterness of life and the end of life. And then he says an interesting halakha that I was not aware of um, until I actually read this source. There's a tradition that when you chew the maror, like the first time your parents force you to eat maror, right? Like you, you take a half bite, you swallow it like you swallowed a pill, and then you down it with like grape juice. You don't have to taste it. Apparently, you're supposed to chew it with all 32 teeth, it's got to touch every one of your teeth, unless you've had teeth pulled, in which case you can chew it with, with the 28 teeth that I have. Shehem Neged, which is, corresponds to the 32 levels of wisdom. The 32 levels of wisdom, anyone know the, the Kabbalistic idea of why the number 32 is attached to wisdom? Uh, interesting, right? It's the gematria of Lev, the heart. 32 is arrived at as a 22 plus a 10. Anyone know what a 22 plus a 10 might be in the mystical tradition? Ten sefirot, ten levels of, of, of the emanation of God, 22 Hebrew letters, right? So the Kabbalah imputed an enormous amount of significance to each one of the Hebrew letters. So you add the 22 letters to the ten sefirot, you get 32. We could do a whole semester on this, um, the, the Zohar's understanding of why there are 32 pathways to wisdom. You're supposed to be chewing with wisdom the maror for every one of your teeth to, to, to touch it. Now you would think at this point, he might be saying the reason you have to do that is so that you experience the full bitterness. Don't get it down quickly, but rather make sure you, you've got to um, force your entire mouth to be exposed to the full bitterness of whatever you're eating. However, by chewing them, you end up sweetening the bitterness of it. That's actually the case. No matter what you're chewing, right? the more that you're saliva interacts with it and breaks down the compounds of anything that is bitter or spicy, right? The more it's going to be diluted by definition because it's going to become, it's not going to be only it in your mouth. By the time you swallow it, it's going to be, uh, your initial in- experience is going to be harsh because you're, chew- you're tasting it. But then eventually your own body literally is sweetening and softening the intensity of the thing that you're eating that's supposed to be bitter. He says, if you swallow the maror whole, you are not yotze, you haven't fulfilled your obligation until you have chewed it so much that you have sweetened it. I found this, he's saying, in a pamphlet of the Ari, or Isaac Luria, the great Kabbalist from Sfat. We know that wisdom is the source of life. As it says in the book of Ecclesiastes, wisdom will bring life to those who own it, who claim it. In this process of chewing the maror so much that it gets sweetened, you're taking that which represented death, mavet, um, from a gematria perspective and from a conceptual perspective, and you with your own teeth, your own sharpness, are turning it from death to life, from bitterness to sweetness. Um, skip to a line down. And this is the reason why we have chasa shehu maror. Chasa, which is lettuce, probably a bitter 
ish romaine lettuce that was um, used by most people for uh, maror way back when, right? Not horseradish. That that is the classic way of doing maror. Ratzalamar, dalad atiot yud the four letters of God's name, romzim al harachamim. Just as when you mention God's name yud you're mentioning the merciful aspect of God. The hakinui shehu adunai. But when you're using, the, when it's being spelled out, Adonai, Aleph, Dalet, Nun, Yud, which has the root of Dan or judgment, Romez al-Hadin, that represents the harsher, judgmental side of God's presence. V'negazet, just like that, Nikra, Maror, Romez al-Hadin, when it's called Maror, we're supposed to think of the bitterness of enslavement. V'nikra, Chasa, but when it's called Chasa, meaning when you're eating as Maror, Chasa, lettuce, Romez al-Harachamim. Lettuce represents, as we all know, mercy. We don't all know that. It's a wordplay. The Amru Razal, and our sages said on the text on the first page, which um, if I don't go back to directly, you have it. The Perak Arve Psachim, in the chapter called Arve Psachim, which both David and I thought that makes a lot of sense because that's the, that's the tenth chapter of Psachim, which deals with all the laws of the Seder, except that even, it's so nice to know when a great sage makes the same mistake that I would have made, yep. because he quotes Arve Psachim, which is the name of that chapter, but it's actually not in that chapter, and he gives the page number, 39a, it's in the third or fourth chapter of Psachim. He wants to go to the famous one, you know, right. the one everybody knows. My chasa, what is chasa? Why is chasa the food that we eat as maror? Dechas rachmana alan uferkinan. Because God was chas, had mercy. Rachmana, the Holy One, had mercy on us, ufarkinan, and redeemed us. This is like nahafochu for Purim on Maror. This is inverting the most significant symbol on the Seder plate having to do with the, the degradation of slavery and saying, even in Maror there is sweetness. And in order for you to be fulfilling your obligation to eat maror, you have to do it in such a way that you have ex- not only experienced the sweetness, you've produced the sweetness. Right? I'm going to chew my maror differently this year with this in mind, and we'll come back at the end after David predicts, uh, presents his text to get a sense of what's the why behind this, right? Is there a why beyond just, oh, look, we found a creative way of creating another dialectic where there's a, um, a ritual object that doesn't mean just one thing, it also means its own opposite. So uh, then we'll continue on with with, uh, the third page. And I think in each of these next texts, we're we're getting just like another, um, a a kind of similar take on on what we had from Shane Luchot Abri, but just from a slightly different face, that they have just a slightly um, different understanding of how this Maror has has multiple elements. Um, So we'll look at the spot Emet, um, Yehuda Aryeh Leib Alter, um, Hasidic uh, teacher and rabbi in the late 19th century. Uh, and uh, he starts uh, a little bit differently. So he, he brings the, the section about um, eating the, the Hillel sandwich, right? Eating the maror as part of this uh, sandwich, which we do after eating the maror. And in this section, he explains um, that that um, le, le, like the whole point of the maror is lehodia ki meriruta galut eno davar nifrad ve shehayashi nui ratzon bishat hagiula right so that he takes the maror to be talking a little bit more about our circumstances right so the maror's point is to make known that the bitterness of exile is not a separate matter. Um, nor, and there, nor is there a change in God's favor at the time of redemption. So he has this idea that that God, that uh, God is dealing with us in a singular way. So it says rather, um, right? The entire way that God deals with us, the Holy Blessed One deals with us, is all one manner, right? So that God doesn't really change when uh, there's redemption versus when there's suffering. It's maybe circumstances that change or that God contains within God's self multiple facets, right? Which he'll bring this proof. Um, uh, sorry. 
right? So he he brings this line that we're familiar from uh, some of us from the from the Amidah, from the second blessing of every uh, standing prayer that we say about God that God brings death and brings life and vitality and causes redemption to sprout, right? So God is not changing. God is all of these things. So he's seeing that within the Maror, the Maror is kind of representing this uh, multifaceted nature of God, but God is is never, is unchanging in that way. So then he says, and, and going off the last thing, Maror who mot or mavet, right? We said before that Maror is equal to the to the miracle value of death. Kibigalut chashuvim kametim, right? Because when we are in exile, we're considered as if we're dead, right? That there's kind of like something about being, um, whether we're talking about physical exile or we're talking about spiritual exile, we're not fully living our lives um, and experiencing life to its fullest. There's something not alive about us. A little dramatic, but, you know, using uh, that idea. Because it says, um, So he says, but it's actually all of this... Um, Galut, all of this exile, these feelings of, of being away from God, of being away from your true self, is all for the purpose of a renewed vitality and for redemption to happen for future generations. So he's saying built into the bitterness is the redemption, right? And that's going to be uh, a continuing idea. So when we're eating the maror, we have the chance, we need to um, to eat it, we need the bitterness, because we are, at least he's, he's seeing himself in galut, both physically and maybe uh, metaphorically. And I think all of us, you know, we have parts of our lives that feel disconnected, the world is not perfected, so we're on a kind of um, exile of sorts. But with the eating of the maror, we're able to sweeten the bitterness on this night, right? So that, again, this idea of the, of the chewing and the creating the sweetness is showing that we need both bitter and we need to, to sweeten it, which is exactly what we had, what we had. And he says the same thing, too, that anyone who swallows it doesn't fulfill their obligation, um, so, um, and so we need to eat the maror since we are presently in exile. But on this night, we are able through the eating of the maror to sweeten the bitterness. And so the one who swallows the bitter herb does not fill their obligation. I think I maybe didn't, didn't get the right full translation here, but that's okay. Um, yeah, I think I meant to cut more of the Hebrew, but that's the basic idea is that it's, it's, um, it's not too dissimilar from, from the previous one, that there's something built into it that is, um, multivalenced, but that also, that, it, that it connects Maror to how God deals with us and how we relate to God and, and our feelings of, uh, of, of exile, um, of not being connected to our true selves and our feelings of redemption, right? That God's, um, God doesn't change how God acts to us. It's it's all kind of within our sphere, our possibility to create this redemption. Now that's a theology that you know ha- may have some some problems for people, but I think the idea is that built into Maror, just like built into God, there are both of these elements of being able to exile and being able to bring life. Um, and so we'll just touch on this last text really quick. And this is a really interesting text. It's um, Tzadok Kohen of Lublin, another Hasid. And he apparently wrote a number of different um, tracks. But this one is called Eita Ochel. And it's about, it's, a, it's an entire book about um, taking how you eat and elevating it and discovering what is spiritual about your daily practices of eating as well as special things you have to eat on holidays. So he brings kind of a different element to the Maror because... Hamaror um, nikra Mishnah Parperet Hapat. So he brings this idea that 
Um, in the language of the Mishnah, maror is referred to as parperet hapat, which is something to discuss what the heck does that mean. In the Gemara, it's kind of fun to say. But eventually they get to the idea that it's, it's, it means appetizer, right? It's, it's something that's not just eaten before, but something to actually, um, bring some, uh, bring some appetite to the rest of the meal. Um, and so it, I'll continue in English a little. As it says in the Tosvot and Pesachim, in, uh, it's called so because it draws the heart to food, for such is the manner of anything that's bitter or spicy or pickled or salted. As um, as it's taught in Pesachim, as it says, bread and salty foods whet the appetite. Right, so we have this idea that we've had kind of the multivalence of the maror, the redemption and the exile involved in it, but there's also something that's a... Um, that, that's kind of neither of those. It's uh, something to get you uh, going in the meal. And he gives a further further idea that in this, in Pesachim it says, um, bread and salty foods whet the appetite. And thus, the enlivening of the soul of the maror gives birth to energy and a desire to seek out more energy. So it has this idea, maliach gorurim halev, ekach bechiyut anavshim olidim chiyut, so it just kind of gets you going, right? It gets you like wanting to seek the next meal, really your next energy, your next uh, kind of part of the Seder. So, and then he kind of goes into some other ideas that in the first chapter of Brachot, they use the analogy salt for sufferings, right? And so too the Maror is called because they embittered their lives. So on this side of the of the argument, of the discussion, he's saying, again, here's the traditional idea that Maror, like salt, right? Salt being another thing to get the appetite going in his mind, um, is, uh, is, is, is both positive and negative. It has this idea of connected to uh, suffering, and it also has this connection to what we know about the Maror, that the root means to be bitter, but so too it is similar to that which is said three great gifts were given through suffering. So this is a, um, a teaching uh, from the, from the Mechilta that says uh, that Israel got the Torah, the land of Israel, and the world to come all through enduring sufferings. Those are three gifts that, have, that come through sufferings. And so too in Egypt, as they afflicted them by making their lives bitter, the text says still they multiplied and still they spread out through this additional source of life. So that built into the exile of Egypt and to the pain of Egypt was the this, this um, fortitude to stay alive, to grow, um, to be able to, to multiply. Um, and this is the reason for the command on matzot and bitter herbs, you shall eat the Pesach. So I, I think that he's just kind of bringing it around to the idea that what in in the darkest moment? What's the opportunity for coming out of it? Right. This is a very Hasidic ideal. Um, this is this is an ideal that he's seeing in these two sides of the maror. That not only is it is it two sided, but it's something to get you moving towards redemption. Right. It's wetting the appetite to eat the rest of um, the Pesach of the you know in in the times of the temple when we had a Passover offering. It would, it would serve that, but it's also something to whet the appetite for redemption for uh, a future um, that, is, that is better than the moment of, of exile. Um, and I'll leave it there. One final thought, and then we'll uh, yield to the next set of teachers. I was once having a conversation earlier in my career with one of my dear teachers, Rabbi Bill Lebo, and I was going through, I don't remember the details, but it was a rough patch. Either it was a rough patch personally or a rough patch professionally, but I felt like everywhere I looked, there was an obstacle. There was a hardship. And even though my life was pretty good in general, I felt like there were, there were hard things happening all around, an illness, uh, a financial thing, a stress. And I remember saying to him, you know, w- when will life yield from hopping from one stress or travail to the other to something different and more beautiful. And he said something to me, he says, I don't mean this to be pessimistic, Adam, but this is life, right? Life is on some level managing the maror 
writ small and writ large that is put before us all the time. There's a living tension here that we can't resolve. On the one hand, it is the worst idea whatsoever to go to someone in the midst of suffering and saying, don't worry, you'll learn something from this. Right. Right. The Talmud actually has a story which, which uh, castigates rabbis who try to do theology at the bedside and ask another rabbi, hey, are you gaining from your suffering? When someone is suffering, what they need is your hand, not your theology. On the other hand, through some of the texts here, the Torah and the Haggadah's memory of enslavement is that even as the Egyptians tried to make our lives as bitter as possible, it was in that very time that we grew and became stronger and became a people in a way that we would not have had it not been the crucible of slavery. And so the rabbis are not even willing to let maror be only maror because if maror is only maror, then guess what? Your life is filled with maror. But since our life is filled with many things that can have a maror taste to it, one of the challenges, not easy, not accomplishable every single time, is to chew it with our own muscles and our own spirit and our own bodies until some of the sweetness can emerge. May that be one of the things that we chew on this Pesach. Who's next? Um, Hi, everyone. Um, We have, so we are moving backwards through the Seder, we're bringing it back from Purim again. Um, So we are on Matzah. Um, So Rabbi Schatz and I, what we did is we took a look at the Seder and we said, Efo Matzah, where do we look at Matzah? So we looked at these four moments. Um, We start with Yachatz, when we break the Matzah, Motzi Matzah, we bless and we eat it. Um, Korach, we have the sandwich, and Zafun, we eat the afikoman at the end of the night. And so we took these moments and we said, how do we, how are we going to experience them? And so we're going to mostly experience yachatz, um, and maybe a little, a little sweetness of Zafun. Um, we've taken a lot of words that you might associate with any of these four moments. Um, things like matzah and blessing and your living room where you might hide an afikomen, um, and some people in this room, and all sorts of things, and we've broken them. Like, the, there we go. Thanks, thanks. Um, we have broken them apart. We have cut them into lots and lots and lots of little pieces um, that have been, sorry, Rabbi Shiro is walking towards me. Oh, okay. He's just making me nervous by being nosy. Perfect. Um, and as you will see, if you are on the field, in that direction, there are cups all around the table. They are full of words because we are going to do some uh, refrigerator magnet style poetry. So what you will be able to do is Rabbi Schatz will give you, there is a little takeout box. You can walk around. I believe it looks like the words are all taped on the cup so you know what's in them. Okay, great. I'm going to stall um, for another minute and a half. Um, and what is going to happen, I'll just speak very slowly. What is going to happen is you will go around and you will fill your box, you will fill your bucket with these words that will hopefully bring you joy um, and actually will then ask you to find yourself a spot if you want, come back to your seat. Um, I know there's lots of people here and it might be hard to like find two chairs, Um, but we're actually going to ask you to write some some poetry um, and we'll take some time and hopefully people will, we're hoping you all share it with us. Um, So we really had some fun with some of these words. Um, so, and then also, because we want you to be able to take this home to your Seder, you can take your poetry home in your little, in your little bucket. Um, and we also prepared a source sheet. So I will give you some highlights of it. But this is not the text portion of the evening, so I will not teach you from it. I will only tell you what's on it. So we start with Yachatz, and um, it is talking about, it's three different sort of, comments on yachatz and what yachatz could mean from a single person. And then Motzi Matzah, we brought a very traditional source from, from the Haggadah and from the Mishnah on why, why matzah, why? And then if you flip it over, it's a little out of order. Why? Just, just repeating for people on Zoom so you can hear all the whys happening in the crowd. And then we have Korach. Um, so when you're all sitting I don't know if anybody else does, but if anyone else eats a kazayat of matzah in your korach, you might be sitting there for a while just 
chompity chomping on your sandwich. So while you do that, we've given a short text and some discussion questions from um, an amazing teacher, Robin Eatstar Wokenfeld. Um, she's great. Um, she is. She is. All, all are in agreement. Um, and then last, a beautiful text on Safoon um, that actually Rabbi Schatz will speak on a little bit at the end to tie a bow on it. Have I stalled enough? Great. I stalled enough. So if you would like, don't, you know, don't mad rush. But if you go over, there are cups. You can mad rush. You have permission to mad rush. There are cups, and they have the word on them on the outside, and you can pick it up. And there are also enough even if there were more people, there are enough that some words you can take two or three if you would like them. Things like the, or hopefully and, I realized. I hope Perspicacious, perspicacious is in there, but that one don't take four of, please. Um, but some of them, feel free to take multiples, like matzah, take four. There's a question. I will define some of them, and Rabbi Klickfeld will be voluntold to define the rest. Ready, set, go. Is there anybody who would like to share their poem? Rabbi Klickfeld is very excited. Okay, Rabbi Klickfeld is going to share his poem. Matzah or maror on the Seder plate. My God. <laughs> Choose the sweet deliverance in slavery. Allow more singing. Yasher Koach to Rabbi Klickfeld. Oh, Rabbi Shapiro has more rules. We snap after poetry. Oh, great idea. Does anybody else want to share their poem? I call this one. Oh, what? Oh, I took a picture of it. I, I laid it out on my on my my leg, and then I took a picture of that, and now I I have it enshrined in history. Um, okay, it says, Dad, the freedom wandering, running the garage, 18 minutes, revealing in the middle of your crumbly haroset. Crumbly, <laughs> crumbly, thank you so much. You can snap if you'd like. <laughs> you can snap for me if you'd like. Yasher Koach. Rachel, would you like to share yours? Since I must have structure, this is a haiku. Bread of affliction, matzah blessing together, freedom singing praise. Jackie's going to read hers. Um, so I did mine in hard mode, thanks to Rabbi Shapiro. Um, so I just pulled words out and hoped... I was going to get something. So, yeah. Um, talking, wandering, together with David, revealing messy deliverance. Hmm. Yeah, Shakoach. <laughs> weird word. Very abstract. Other, yeah, Jonathan. Slavery, unleavened, matzah, wandering, freedom, eat, eat. <laughs> I like the double eat. Okay, so first of all, part of the reason that we did the Haggadah Slam this way is because we're hoping that each element of this Haggadah Slam, because we're doing it in different modalities, that you will be able to take something away for your people based on who's at your Seder. So this might work really well for you. Maybe the text study would work better for you, or maybe both work really well, and you can use everything. And then Rabbi Shapiro will be his own modality, and if you're lucky enough to have him at your Seder, you'll be in Chicago. So um, we, I, I want to just, as Jackie said, put a bow on this by um, by reading a little piece of Safoon, of this Safoon um, excerpt that I gave to you. And what I, what I want us to get from this particular excerpt is the idea that anything that you do around these different elements of matzah can be interactive, but also can be deep, right? The afikoman can be a deep experience. Um, for most people, it's not just because it, sh it can also just be fun. But what I'm about to read, I think, gives gives that kind of deep spin on something that could be seen as just fun and games. So this, these are the last two paragraphs of Safun. 
when this was copied, it was copied out of order, so it's the third page as opposed to the fourth. But you know, we're we're all f- joyfully flex- flexible here at Temple Bethlehem. Um, you can have them. Yeah. As we approach the end of the Seder, we come to the section in which we find and eat the afikomen, the section called safun, which means hidden or stored away. The implication is that the afikomen represents something inaccessible, something not available to us in our everyday lives, complete and ultimate freedom, true redemption. Seder with family, learning, laughter, and food, we finally act out the repair of our broken world. When we eat the afikomen, the broken pieces of the human realm will get put back together. They will recombine inside us. They will become us. The bridge between heaven and earth will be repaired. And this is the secret of the afikomen ritual. Who must we trust to bring the other half? The children. In the end, the most important piece, the point of it all, the future, our own redemption, is in the hands of the younger generation. We have no choice but to trust them to bring it to the table. We recognize that perfection is hidden away, but with the ritual of the afikomen, we live into our hope, our confidence that it will be found and unwrapped by our children so they may eat fully of the bread of redemption. The Seder is about pointing forward. Only the children can taste the future. Rabbi Matt Shapiro and Yasha Koch to Jackie for a really exciting and fun activity. Paula gave us a poem, so she said, Aunt, Grandma, Grandpa, Blessing Circle, Revealing 18 Minutes, Freedom Together with Kids, Prize with Singing Coexist. And then she said, thank you, Jackie. Hey, Rabbi Shapiro, I'm going to sing with you. I'm going I'm to do what's called harmonize. I'm doing my poem first. Grandpa God, Grandpa God, Negotiate Breaking... Sweet Rabbi Shapiro more <laughs> in messy guitar case. <laughs> Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. It's inspiring. Okay, Nigun. Okay. Let's go. You didn't like my poem? I loved it. Let's go. So you don't like my poem. But it's cliffhanger. Okay. So I want you to take a moment to sit quietly. And I want you to see if you can conjure up a person in your mind that when I say the phrase, someone who holds you, someone who holds you, who's the person who comes to mind? Could be a parent, be a sibling, a child, a dear friend, a guide, a teacher, someone who holds you close. Could be alive, could be dead. 
could be geographically close, could be geographically very far away. And I want you to sort of bring that person as close to present in your mind's eye as you can. They look like what they might be wearing, how it physically feels to be near them. And what it feels like to have them hold you. Is it an arm around the shoulder? A head in a lap? A caress? And I also want you to think of a time that was challenging for you. A fraught moment. Nothing existentially threatening, necessarily. But a moment that was legitimately difficult. What was happening in your life? It could be something that's still happening. It could be something that has passed. What were the circumstances who were the people involved? What was coming up? What made it feel narrow, difficult, just kind of rough to get through? And if you can, to bring into that moment the person who holds you close. To sort of picture them next to you sitting with you, their arm around you, indicating to you, whether with their words or with their physicality, that they're right there with you, that you're going to get through this. To just take three deep breaths in your mind's eye with that person right next to you as you're navigating that fraught moment. Take three breaths, breathing in and out. And once more in and out. One more deep breath in, really feeling the presence of that person who's holding you. And then releasing and letting go. I hope you could feel someone close to you. And I'll offer up that this isn't necessarily the direction I imagined going when I was told to talk about the Pesach offering. But here we are. And I'm going to hand out this source sheet quickly. There's a panel at the top. I... I talk a lot, as we know. I usually lead with words, so I pushed myself to lead with an image from a friend of mine, Jordan Gorfinkel's graphic novel, Passover Haggadah, which if folks have seen it, you probably love it. And if you haven't seen it, I encourage you to check it out. So what do you, what do you see? Rabbi Shots, maybe you can throw it in the chat for the folks on Zoom. What do you see? In that panel, I know I did my best with the image quality. Yeah, there's a couple more, of course. Can people make that out? Yes, no, maybe. Yeah, what do you see? Yeah. Right. So what what's happening? Just right. Yeah. But it's a family that belongs together. 
Yeah. That's right. Right. Yeah, that it's that it's like this family huddled together kind of just just inside the dwelling with blood on the doorpost. And then there's this sort of like smoky, tornado-y looking presence that's kind of entering in. And then what's happening in that third panel? That's the fourth one. Right, right. Third panel, right? Exactly. That's right. Sort of encircling and almost embracing them. And then in that fourth panel, it it departs, right? And then, David, as you were saying, that one of the family members is sort of brought brought down to his knees in worship, right? Usually, and you can see underneath, there's, there's a quote I bring from um, another Haggadah. It's a Haggadah called The Night That Unites, um, compiled, um, uh, compiling a lot of teachings of three... Uh, you know, giants of Jewish thought, um, Reb Shlomo Karlbach, Rav Cook, and the Rav, Rabbi, jo- uh, Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik. And um, this piece is quoting from Rav Cook, who's talking about how we usually think about the Pesach offering as a reminder of when God passed over, right? We talk about, oh, passing over, Passover, Pesach, right? But what Rav Cook teaches on this is that it's actually indicating that God was basically in every home. Every Egyptian home, every Israelite home, going and then kind of lingering in each place. And so that when we envision that, what happened in the Israelite home, what happened in the Jewish homes, is that unlike the Egyptians who were visited with punishment, you can see I sort of bolded this next phrase, their visit took the form of an awareness of God's presence and protection. That Pesach, Rav Kook teaches, translates as, I will hover over you. So that the name of the holiday itself suggests that God's care and presence were revealed to us that night which is not usually how we think about sacrificing a lamb, right? Usually we think about sacrificing the lamb, putting the blood on the doorpost so that God doesn't come in and smite the firstborn. And this inverts that almost completely. It's actually that God was present in each home, in, in everyone that was, with everyone that was experiencing that night had some kind of encounter with God. And, and going back to what Rabbi Kligfeld and David were talking about, there's, there's kind of a duality here. And usually we focus on one side of this duality. Usually we think about how God visited each home in such a way to bring death, right, within the Egyptians. That's part of what happened. And, also part of what happened is that God was actually present in every Israelite home as well. And what happened in those homes was an embrace. That for each of those families, what they experienced in that night was, was that embrace of a loved one in a fraught moment. And that that's also something that when we look at and indicate the Pesach offering on the table we can be reminded of. Folks have thoughts on that? What is that? Does that resonate? Is that dissonant? Yeah, Jeff. Yeah. Yeah. I defer to our senior rabbi, Rabbi Adam Klegfeld. Um, for the folks on Zoom, Jeff, Jeff said that seeing in the visual, the, the picture of the family huddled together, that he can't help sort of 
connect that with some of the images that we're seeing come out of Europe with Ukrainian families, certainly Ukrainian refugees, like fleeing their homes and kind of huddling together, right? I don't think I have good words for that, and I certainly don't have the two hours ahead of me to try to give those good words context, right? The, the one sort of little piece I'll just offer in that is, I think for me that duality resonates as well, right? That there is deep tragedy unfolding that, I mean, we were talking a little bit about it this week in a meeting that we, we don't even quite know, not even just what the response might be, but what piece of what's unfolding to respond to, that it just feels incredibly overwhelming and tragic and we must do something and we don't even really know what that something is. That's painful and difficult. And embraces are real and love is real. And that when we hold each other close, that that connection and holiness is also something that we can bring into our lives. And that's probably inadequate. And it's, and it's still real for me. So I don't know if that works as good enough, but I think that's what I got on it. Other thoughts on the picture or the teaching? There's two other pieces I have, but I definitely don't have time for them. So I'm just going to linger on this for one more minute, and then I'll, I'll share one more of those pieces. I was going to have us partner up and share, but, you know, it's getting late. So what, what I'll offer up then, just sort of to, to tidy this piece up, is I, I encourage you to, to bring this to your satyrs. Right? I encourage you to think about who are the people who um, you feel held by, what are the ways in which you can hold the people that you love close? I think that that's a, a good and important question. I also, by the way, I think this is the machloket about what a Haggadah slam is continues. I also think it's good to refer people to other good Haggadot. Um, and I, rec- I recommend both of these if you want to um, check them out and bring them in uh, to your Seder. We still got, you know, eight, 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 eight-ish cooking and cleaning and shopping days left until Pesach, so easy enough to snag one more Haggadah to throw into the mix. I'll skim over one more piece because I think it's interesting, and then I'll gesture to tying a bow, although I defer to any and all of my esteemed colleagues if they'd like to tie another on the old oak tree. Tie another ribbon round the old oak tree. Different thing. That's a reference. There was another interesting piece that I kind of stumbled on um, talking about the idea of what it is to offer up the lamb specifically, not just the act of offering a sacrifice, not just the act of being embraced and navigating a fraught moment, but what is it to actually offer up the lamb? And there were a a couple of of authors who, who referenced this this is just from a, a blog entry I found by Rabbi uh, Paul Kipnis, a contemporary, who's currently working in writing. And he talked about how the lamb is one of the things, one of the many things, right? Because the Egyptians were polytheistic and worshipped lots of different deities and items and so on, that the lamb was one of the things that the Egyptians worshipped. Excuse me. And so that by offering that up, that in and of itself is, you know, sort of killing off, as it were, a false god. And that through that act, it's also a gesture, um, I sort of bolted it in the source sheet, our ancestors evidence their willingness to reject all the false gods of the Egyptians. And then he goes on to talk about how we too can declare our willingness to reject false gods of our world, right? We can pledge to move beyond our worship of false gods, of money or power, right? What are the, what are the false gods that, that we might worship? And it reminded me of a teaching that I read um, elsewhere out of a book called Addiction and Grace. It's a very interesting book um, where the author talked about this idea that whatever we have in our mind at any given moment that's the thing that we're worshiping in that moment, 
right? Sort of a, a riff on the idea that, you know, your mind is like tofu, whatever it's marinating in, that's what it tastes like, right? That's whatever your mind is marinating in, that's, that's, what, it, that's what it's generating. So this idea, that's a, that's a tough idea. But whatever you're thinking about, wherever your thoughts are directed, right? Think about that idea, think about, right? Remember, know before whom you stand. Whatever is in your presence of mind, that's what your focus is. Whatever your focus is, that's what you're sort of really connecting to as an ultimate concern. So if you're thinking about how to attain wealth and power, well, that's where you're directing your energy. And so I think that this idea of offering up the lamb is also a gesture to moving past idolatry and moving into the worship of that which brings up brings us health, hope, love, freedom, and so on. Side idea, we can talk about it more later. Bring it to your Seder. Let's move into a bow or try to have one. It's the match modality. We're going with it. It's great. Thumbs up from one person. We did this backwards. I was supposed to go first. Not like I was supposed to go first, but right, if you, if you sketch it out, it's not Maror Matzah Pesach, it's Pesach Matzah Maror. Right. Um, but why? Why? Why is it that way? It actually makes more sense the other way. You would think first you would have the maror to taste the bitterness of slavery. Then you would have the matzah, which reminds us of our affliction and then our freedom. And then you conclude with Pesach, right, to remind us of our liberation. So last thing I'll offer up, and then a meta bow. This is a quote from Rabbi Sachs's, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, Alava Shalom, his Haggadah. And he talks about this really interesting teaching that the, the lamb symbolizes freedom, maror symbolizes slavery, matzah combines both. So why do symbols of freedom precede the bitter herbs of slavery? Surely, surely. I am serious. Surely slavery preceded freedom. The Hasidic masters answered, only to, only to a free human being does slavery taste bitter. Only to a free human being does slavery taste bitter. Had the Israelites forgotten freedom, they would have grown used to slavery. So whatever it is we get mired in, whatever it is we get stuck in, if we don't know what the other option is, it's easy to stay there. If you don't know what a different world could look like, if you don't have a vision for how things might be better, you might as well just keep on accepting things the way they are. And it can be painful to see the gap between what might be and what is. And it often is. And we have to start there. We have to start with a sense of we are free. I am free. I know what that is. I know what that can be. And okay, yeah, I'm going to taste that bitterness. But I'm going to remember that's not where I want to stay. And so what I would offer as sort of the meta thought on that is it's good to structure your Seder in such a way. We're told that we should structure the whole evening in such a way as to invite questions, right? You could have asked the question, why did you guys structure it this way? Aha, good question, right? You should structure it so that you ask questions. Because asking questions is one of the truest signs that we're free. If somebody's lording over you and telling you what to do and where to be and when to be there and you have no agency, you're not going to ask questions. You're just going to say, yes, sir, no, ma'am, okay, I'll do whatever you say. Being free means we have the ability to ask questions. And so what I would invite you to do and to offer up, there's um, the, the teaching that just came to mind for me, last thing I'll say, um, is Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel would talk about that we sometimes get stuck in trying to figure out what the right answer is. And really what we should be remembering to do 
is how to ask the right question. So as we head into the holiday, I will offer up that challenge and invitation. Thanks for slamming Haggadahs with us. Rabbi Schatz is going to tell me I did a great job. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks for coming out, everybody. Thanks for Zooming with us. Chag Sameach. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you. That was great. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.